Chapter Twenty Four of the Ordeal of Elizabeth by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The next day dawned clear and bright, a beautiful morning in early spring after a night of storm. Upon Elizabeth's spirits as she dressed, the weather produced the illogical effect that it does upon most of us. Reviewed by daylight, the situation seemed to her many degrees less desperate. The night before, there had seemed to her only one way out, and that a tragical one. But now there were, there must be, a hundred ways, if only she could gain the time to think of them. The first thing was to obtain the money, but this in itself was no easy matter. She had promised it to Paul as if it were a mere trifle, yet, as a matter of fact, she was as badly off herself at the time as was to be expected of a young woman who had gone out a great deal, and established and lived up to an expensive reputation for being always well and appropriately gowned. She reviewed her resources. Mrs. Bobby would have lent her the money at once, and asked no questions, but from this course Elizabeth's pride shrank uncomfortably. She preferred to take a sum she had just laid aside to satisfy to some extent the claims of a long-suffering and complacent dressmaker, but even with this sacrifice determined on, she was still far short of the amount required. She took out in desperation her various jewels and trinkets, and looked them over, wondering how much they were worth. There were many pretty things her aunts had given her, none of them probably of any great intrinsic value, and there were the beautiful gifts that Mrs. Bobby had showered upon her, and finally there was the string of pearls which she always wore about her neck one of the few heirlooms which old Madame Van Borst had once kept under lock and key, and which her daughters had, of course, made over to Elizabeth. The girl stood now hesitating with the pearls in her hand. She had worn them to every ball that winter, she was wont to say, with her half-joking, half-real touch of superstition, that they brought her luck, as if, with their possession, something of the spirit of that proud beauty of a bygone day had entered into her, enabling her to conquer the world in which the older woman had been naturally at home. Would the power leave her with the pearls? The fantastic thought lingered for a moment, and then impatiently she thrust it aside, and put the precious heirloom in with the rest of her possessions, which she had resolved to sacrifice. It was not a moment when she could afford to dally with sentiment. Yet what a strange, disreputable proceeding it seemed! She was haunted with a vague sense of losing caste, as she took her trinkets to one of the smaller jewelry shops, and faltered out her improbable tale of their being unbecoming and of no use to her. The jeweler, well used to the straits of fashionable young women, listened without a smile, and offered her on the whole a fair price, though it was much less than she expected. There was nothing that she was not obliged to part with from the jewelled watch which Mrs. Bobby had given her at Christmas, to the pearls which proved to be the most valuable of all. When she left the shop she had deprived herself of all her ornaments, but she held the necessary bribe in her hand, and as the simplest way of conveying it to Halleck, she got on a cable car and went up at once to his studio at Carnegie. There was nothing startling in the proceeding for he had now a number of pupils who came to him at his studio, and though the girls whom Elizabeth knew always brought their maids, or a chaperone of some sort, 
she was not in the mood to waste much thought on conventionalities. Her one idea was to fulfill her share of the bargain before he should, perchance, have repented of his, and she did not think of the chance of meeting any one. Her own affairs had reached a crisis which blinded her to the fact that to other people the world was progressing peacefully in the usual order of events. This streamlike state of indifference to all but the one anxiety continued till she reached Carnegie, and was borne up in the elevator to Paul's studio, which was directly opposite to Mr. Dauteville's. And here, for the first time, she paused, seized by a sudden panic. From behind the closed curtain at the end of the small vestibule there came the sound of a woman's voice, strained, nasal, raised high in what seemed a tirade of denunciation. To Elizabeth's mind, as she heard it, there arose an involuntary recollection of Bassett Mills, and of the gaudy little parlor behind her aunt's shop, and some bitter words directed against herself, in what seemed a past period of her history. She stood hesitating, terrified. Then the curtain was pushed aside, and a woman came out. It was her cousin Amanda. Her face was white and set, her eyes blazing. She stared at Elizabeth for a moment as if dazed, then brushed past her without a word. Paul stood on the threshold, a picturesque object in his velveteen coat and turned-down collar, against the artistic background of the luxuriously furnished studio. He looked flushed, annoyed. The scene which had just taken place had evidently been a trying one. But when he saw Elizabeth standing doubtful in the hall, his face cleared, and he came forward to greet her with effusion. "'Darling, how good of you to come here!' He evidently hailed the visit as an overture towards reconciliation. She hastened to disabuse him. "'It was the easiest way to bring this,' she said, handing him the package which she had clasped nervously all the way up. "'Will you be kind enough, please, to count it and see if it is all right?' It was impossible to speak with more icy brevity, or to impart to any proceeding a more severely businesslike air. He flushed uncomfortably but did not allow his vexation to interfere with the evident necessity of counting the money. "'It is all right,' he said, biting his lips, as he put down the last roll of bills. "'Do you wish me to give you a receipt?' he asked, with fine sarcasm. "'No,' said Elizabeth gravely. "'I rely on your word.' Paul bowed. "'Thank you,' he said. "'And now, is there anything else I can do for you?' "'Nothing.' said Elizabeth briefly, except what you know already. And now I must go. She moved toward the door, but he placed himself in her way. Come, come, Elizabeth, he said. I'm not going to let you go like that. For the first time you make me a visit. Give me a kiss now, just to show that you don't bear malice. Elizabeth's only reply was a look of ineffable haughtiness. Will you let me pass, please? she said in a low tone of concentrated wrath, and with an uneasy laugh, he obeyed her. "'What a virago you are,' he said, almost as bad as your cousin Amanda. It must be the hair,' he added with a sneer. But Elizabeth did not pause to reply. Anxious only to escape, she closed the studio door hastily behind her, and a moment later the elevator bore her swiftly down and she regained the street with the feeling of having staved off misfortune, for the moment at least. 
She found, when she got home, a note from Gerard, informing her that he had been unexpectedly called out of town for a few days on business, but hoped to see her on his return. There were the flowers, too, which he sent her daily. He had no intention, evidently, of taking her answer of the day before as final. She realized this with a thrill that held in it more of pleasure than alarm. Still, she was glad that he was out of town. His absence was a reprieve, giving her more of the time she wanted, though it is hard to say what she expected to gain by it, but very little often sufficed to restore Elizabeth's spirits. She was going out to dinner that evening, and she dressed for it with a mind that was comparatively at ease. But poor Elizabeth's moments of tranquillity were just then short. She was nearly dressed when Celeste entered with the information that a young person had called to see Mademoiselle, who insisted upon seeing her at once. "'I told her that Mademoiselle is dressing,' said the maid, with expressive gestures, "'that she has an engagement. It is most important, but—but she is a most determined young person. She insists that I bring up a message at once.' "'It is Amanda, of course,' thought Elizabeth, with a terrible sinking of the heart. She had forgotten until that moment the meeting in the studio. She glanced at the clock. "'I have fifteen minutes, Celeste,' she said. "'Show her up. She may want to see me about something important.' The maid departed, and Elizabeth bent down nervously to sort out gloves and handkerchief, wondering, as she did now at each unexpected incident, what danger it might portend. "'I thought,' said Amanda, "'I might come up. Scenes were first cousins.' She stood in the doorway, her eyes roaming about the room, taking in every detail. The soft prevailing harmonies of the pale blue and rose, the firelight flicking on the tiled hearth, the shining silver ornaments on the dressing-table, the profusion of bric-a-brac, of cotillion favors, the roses in the china bowl, the general air of luxury. All a fit setting to the proud young beauty, standing before the mirror in her shimmering white satin and laces. "'My, my, but you look fine,' said Amanda, under her breath. A slightly awed expression crossed her face, modifying the assurance of her entrance. "'You're going out?' she asked, looking almost ready to retreat. "'To dinner, yes, but not just yet. Won't you sit down, Amanda?' Elizabeth said, trying to speak easily. I "'I'm glad to see you. How is Aunt Rebecca and everyone at Bassett Mills?' Amanda sat down her eyes still wandering eagerly across the room. Elizabeth, looking at her, saw the unfavorable change that a few months had made. True, she was smartly dressed, with the cheap, tawdry smartness that can be bought ready-made at the shops, and her hat was tilted carefully at the fashionable angle. Her hair, growing low about her forehead, had still the plenty natural wave to it, which was a legacy from the fever, and the general effect at first glance was striking— but the face under the jaunty, befeathered hat was white and haggard. The eyes had a wild, restless look. There were hard, vindicative lines about the mouth. Her hands moved incessantly, plucking at the fringe on her gown. Glad? Well, I guess you're not very glad to see me, she said with a strange, mocking smile, ignoring the latter part of Elizabeth's speech. There never was much love lost between us, and now— but still I thought I'd pay you a visit. I'm staying with Uncle Ben's folks, and they told me I ought to look up my swell cousin, since you were so sure to want to see me. She gave a short, jarring laugh. 
that stuck-up maid wouldn't believe me. Thought I was crazy. When I said we were first cousins, I don't see why. I'm sure I don't look so, well, so different as all that. Her voice sank into rather a wistful key, and she stole a glance at the long pier-glass that stood opposite her. "'I got my suit at a bargain sale,' she said. "'The girl said it was real stylish.' "'It's very pretty,' said Elizabeth gently. She glanced at Amanda with a sudden pity that overpowered her first annoyance and alarm at the inopportune visit. What had brought her to town? Some vague or rational hope of winning back Paul's admiration, perhaps— with this gown that was real stylish, and the new hat, and the general tawdry attempt at smartness. It was that, probably, which had taken her to the studio, and no doubt Paul had been disgusted with this attempt to revive an old flirtation, and in his irritation had convinced her somewhat rudely of his indifference. Poor Amanda! Really, she had not seemed quite right in the head since the fever. "'Were you surprised to see me this morning?' said Amanda, watching her and seeming to read her thoughts. I went to call on another old friend, and I wasn't welcome. She gave another jarring laugh, which ended this time in a sob. <laughs> he, he didn't seem glad to see me, considering how well he used to know me, once. Her voice broke piteously. She paused for a moment, and then, I hate him, I hate him, she broke out fiercely. I'd give anything in this world if I had never known him. So would I, said Elizabeth, low and bitterly, and then stopped, frightened at what she had said. But Amanda showed no surprise. Uh, you think that now, she said slowly, but you didn't used to. You've got so many rich bows now that you don't care about him any longer. But I wonder what they'd think, these rich bows of yours, if they knew how wild you used to be about him how you were wandering about the country with him, if they knew. Amanda leaned forward and spoke in an impressive whisper. If they knew that you have to do what he wants now, and you are afraid of him. There was a silence. Elizabeth, faint and giddy, sank into the nearest chair and put up involuntarily her hand to her heart. So here was another danger threatening, another person who knew something everything, perhaps. Her brain reeled. Amanda leaned back in her chair, watching her triumphantly, a hard, bright glitter in her eyes. Amanda! Elizabeth's white lips tried in vain to frame a coherent question. Amanda! She made another attempt. What do you mean? Amanda smiled contemptuously. Oh, you know well enough what I mean, she said. Why did you go there this morning when you don't care for him any more, and are sorry you ever knew him, unless you are afraid of him, and you have to do what he wants? Oh, is that all? Elizabeth drew a long sigh of relief. I went there this morning because—because because I wanted to meet a friend. She broke off in confusion before the look on Amanda's face. Then, with a sudden reaction of feeling, she raised her head haughtily. It doesn't matter, she said, what I went there for. It's a, a studio. All his pupils go there. I might have wanted to see him about singing lessons, about anything. If that is all you base your suspicions on, Amanda, she stopped. Ah, but if it isn't, said Amanda in her impressive whisper, which seemed fraught with a mysterious consciousness of power. 
another silence. The defiant look on Elizabeth's face faded. She leaned back in her chair and half-closed her eyes. Ah, oh, she was weary, deathly weary, of these constant nervous shocks. How much did Amanda know? How much? If she could only be sure. I think they'd be rather surprised, Amanda went on in unnaturally quiet tones. These swell friends of yours, if they knew all about you, they think you very sweet. They give you lots of things. Amanda's hard, restless eyes roamed again about the room and rested on Elizabeth's beautiful gown. It don't seem fair, she broke out suddenly with a fierce little sob. It don't seem fair that you should have so much, and then to be so pretty, too, as well as all the rest. She was silent for a moment, struggling with the tears that threatened to break forth, and Elizabeth began to breathe more freely. All this bluster, after all, these vague threats, seemed to resolve themselves into the old unreasoning powerless jealousy, nothing more. And with the relief came again the sense of pity, of a certain justice in Amanda's point of view. "'It isn't fair,' she said softly. "'I don't deserve it, but—' "'Well, fair or not, I guess it don't make much difference,' Amanda interrupted her drearily, rising to her feet. "'You've always had the best of me, and probably you always will. But if ever you don't—' She broke off suddenly and moved toward the door. "'I guess I'd better be going,' she said. "'You'll be late for your dinner. Only, before you go—' She paused with her hand on the knob of the door, that hard, mocking glitter in her eyes. "'Before you go, just put on some of your jewelry, won't you? Seems to me you look bare without it.' "'My, my jewelry?' Elizabeth's heart, which had been beating more quietly, suddenly stood still. "'I don't wear jewelry, Amanda,' she said, in a dull, toneless voice. "'What? Not your pearls?' Amanda's hard, mocking eyes seemed to read her through and through. "'Your pearls you were so proud of in the country, that you said you would always wear. Seems to me you need them. Well, what with that fine dress?' She stood hovering by the door, a weird figure in the exaggerated smartness of her attire with her white face framed in the deep red hair, and that strange, uncanny smile gleaming across it, lighting it up into an elf-like suggestion of mysterious power. Elizabeth stared at her helplessly, fascinated. Then, with a great effort, she roused herself and hurried toward her. "'Amanda!' she cried desperately. "'Amanda, for heaven's sake, stop these insinuations! Tell me plainly what you mean!' She gripped her fiercely by the arm, her face was white and set. For a moment Amanda's eyes met hers. Then, as if in spite of herself, they fell. She freed herself sullenly from Elizabeth's grasp. "'Well, I guess I don't mean much,' she said awkwardly. "'Or if I did, it don't matter. I wouldn't tell tales against my first cousin.' She turned the knob of the door, but again she paused, that weird smile still flickering in her eyes. "'Good night,' she said. I hope you'll enjoy your dinner. Too bad you haven't got your pearls. She gave one last jarring laugh, opened the door, and went out. Elizabeth, white and trembling, sank into the nearest chair. How she frightened me, she gasped out. These constant shocks will kill me. Does she know anything definite? Probably not, but what can I do? How can I find out? 
Ah, Celeste! As the maid appeared with an anxious expression in the doorway. The carriage is waiting. Very well. She hurried to the dressing-table, caught up her gloves, and gave one hasty glance at her white face. Oh, how ugly I am growing, she thought, turning away with a shudder, quite like Amanda. I see the resemblance. It is this awful life. I wish—oh, how I wish I were home! The thought swept over her, thrilling her with an intense, passionate longing for her aunt's presence, for the country, for quiet, for rest and peace. Yes, I will go home, she thought, as Celeste adjusted the cloak about her shoulders, and she hastened down to the carriage. I will go home, she repeated to herself at intervals during the evening, while she talked and laughed with a restless light in her eyes and a feverish flush in her cheeks. The country will be so peaceful. I shall be quite safe there, away from all this agitation, this trying to keep up appearances. It is the best way out. How fortunate that he is away! I won't see him again before I go. It was, she felt, a heroic resolution. Yes, she would go at once, and she resolutely crushed back the thought, He will follow. End of chapter 24